0: Thank you for listening to Calvary Aurora's weekly Bible study. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Well, good morning from the deep south. Say good morning, y'all. We're going to be in two places this morning, Genesis chapter 28, as well as Genesis chapter 32. As you're turning, I just want to say two quick things. First off, Calvary Aurora, your reputation goes before you all the way to the deep south, Athens, Georgia. We know Calvary Aurora as a church that loves Jesus, that has a passion for God's Word, as a group of people filled with the Spirit, making an impact in their community. And we just want you to know uh, that we are delighted to be considered family with Calvary Aurora. And so thank you very much. I also also have to say, you know, Jesus said, Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And very rarely do we define what the treasure we're to store up is. And, And ultimately... There's only two things we can take with us. Our friends and our memories. And I got to tell you that it is a treasure to be able to consider your pastor, Pastor Ed Taylor, not just as a friend, but as a brother. A couple years ago, he took an interest in kindling a friendship with me. It's become a friendship that I cherish. He's made an impact in my life. It's nice as a younger pastor to have Older fellows that have been doing it for a while, available uh, for young guys to be able to call, to get advice from. You guys, i got to tell you, you have a gem of a pastor, and don't take it for granted. Absolutely. Before we get into Genesis chapter 28, I, I want to set the context of kind of the larger flow of the greater narrative in Genesis, we're going to kind of be diving into a scene, so I need to set some backstory so we're all on the same page. You got Abraham. Abraham marries Sarah. They ultimately have a son of promise. His name is Isaac. Isaac gets to a point where it's he's marrying age. So Abraham sends his servant Eleazar back to the home country to call a bride for Isaac. Her name ends up being Rebecca. It's glorious. She's brought back, they get married, and Rebecca comes up pregnant with twins, no less. Well, before delivery, they're wrestling in the womb. God makes it clear to Rebecca that the birthright, the blessing, this spiritual heritage given to Abraham, passed down to Isaac, would not go to her firstborn, but would instead be given to the youngest of these two sons. Well, Esau was born first, then came Jacob. Now, we had a little problem. And the problem is that though God had been clear, Jacob would receive the birthright and not Esau. Esau happened to be Isaac's favorite. Jacob was the favorite of his mother. And Isaac, as the story plays itself out, is still determined to give the blessing and the birthright to Esau, though God had made it clear it was to be given to Jacob. Well, things get so desperate that Rebekah and Jacob hatch a plot. Isaac is blind. Jacob goes in, pretends to be his brother. Isaac ends up blessing Jacob, thinking Jacob is Esau. But once the blessing's handed out, that's about it. Esau comes in, finds out that his brother has swindled him. He becomes very angry to the point that we're told Esau wants to kill his younger brother. Now that's, that's pretty toxic. So Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, this is not a good dynamic. We should tell Jacob to leave. As a matter of fact, let's send him to my brother, a man by the name of Laban, who lives in Haran, at least until Esau kind of gets his emotions under control, everything blows over, and then Jacob will come back. Jacob leaves, and this is where we are, Genesis 28, beginning with verse 10 Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, don't forget. Jacob is in a dicey situation. And he's not equipped for it. Jacob is not an outdoorsman. Jacob is used to the comforts of tent life, good living. Surviving in the wilderness is not exactly Jacob's forte. Bear grills, Jacob is not. Secondly, this jaunt into the wilderness, he's not camping. This is not vacation. This is not leisure. He's literally running for his life. He is in the wilderness for pure necessity. His brother Esau is angry and wants to kill him, which naturally, if you knew Esau, carried with it a measure of of natural trepidation. You see, Esau, contrary to his brother, was a man of the land. Esau was an experienced marksman, a savvy hunter. Esau was used to tracking his game and waiting for the ideal moment to go in for the kill, Imagine, you're Jacob, you fled your home, Esau wants to kill you, you're in the wilderness. You don't know what you're doing. It's dark. You're freaking out, man, because any moment you're kind of expecting Esau could come out of nowhere, that an arrow flies out of the darkness and you're done. At this point in Jacob's life, his entire existence, his reality has been upended. As the result of the actions of one day, he now finds himself sent away from his home with a future that's uncertain at best. As he tries to sleep, his mind races. Am I even going to survive the night? Is Esau going to get me? If I do even survive the journey, let's say I make it to Haran, will I find Laban? I mean, keep in mind, they're not Facebook friends. Yes, Laban's his uncle. He doesn't know what he looks like. He's got no picture. He's never seen him, never met him. His mind's racing. What's going to happen? What's my life going to be about? And it's that. That's the context for what's about to happen. Jacob's life, everything he finds familiar, everything he takes comfort in, has been stripped away. Well, verse 12 Jacob dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth." You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to the land. For I will not leave you until, and you might want to underline this, I have done what I have spoken to you. Now there's a lot that we could unpack, lots that we could discuss about this dream. We don't have time for it. But what you do need to note is that through the dream, God is revealing three attributes, three realities about himself that Jacob needed to understand. Truth number one, God was accessible. Notice what Jacob first sees. He sees a ladder set up on the earth so that its top reached the heavens. And the point of this was to help Jacob realize that there was way more to his present existence, his present reality, than what he could physically see. There was indeed, while he was oblivious to it, an access point between heaven and earth, that there was a way mortal man could approach the infinite God. The Lord God of heaven was letting Jacob know that he was not only accessible to him, but that God was interested in having a relationship with Jacob similar to the one he had with Abraham and the one that he had had with Isaac. Truth number two. The dream revealed that God was actively involved in the affairs of Jacob's life while Jacob didn't know it. Aside from there being this connecting point between heaven and earth, upon this stairway, Jacob, we're told, sees the angels of God doing what? Ascending and descending. Once again, the point of this was to emphasize to Jacob the reality that God was not just accessible to him, not just wanted a relationship, but while he may have been ignorant of this fact, God was actively involved in the affairs of his life Yes, things were chaotic for Jacob, but this fact that the angels are ascending and descending emphasized the truth that while things looked out of control for Jacob, they were very much in control of God. Finally, aside from seeing the stairway and the angels, Jacob notices what? The Lord standing above it all. As Jacob is processing everything he's seeing, The focal point of the dream slowly comes into view as his gaze works its way upward. The Lord was not just accessible to Jacob, not just active in his life, but the reality, truth number three, is that all heavenly blessings descend from God to man. Ultimately, the dream is about God's grace— There's ample evidence that Jacob, as idiotic as he would be in various instances, did, even from a young age, possess a hunger for higher things. That Jacob really did long for the birthright. He knew that before he had even been born, God had promised that it would be him, not his brother, who would receive it. He knew the blessing was his. He knew the birthright was his. But understand, Jacob's core problem, his struggle, was understanding how he was to attain the blessing he knew he had been given. And remember why Jacob is in this very situation. He had schemed to procure something God could only give him. For years, Jacob had been striving and working to attain the birthright. Earlier on, he had sold a a bowl of soup to his brother, his dying brother, no less. When that deal wasn't honored, Jacob tricked his blind father into giving him the blessing unknowingly. This was something he wanted, and the desire of his heart wasn't, wasn't wrong. The birthright was to be longed for, and yet it was the way that Jacob pursued the blessing of God that was all wrong. You see, the core idea behind this stairway and these angels ascending and descending from God, all while Jacob's doing what? Sleeping. Was to hammer home the reality that Jacob didn't need to strive to attain a blessing. Only God could give him. God had given him access. God was actively involved in his life and he's sleeping. God didn't need Jacob's help. He didn't need Jacob to take the reins to speed up the process. God was at work, and that work would yield the blessing Jacob desired. The question is, would Jacob allow God to do his thing? And friend, you need to know right from the beginning that this same truth, this same reality, exists for you and I. I going to tell you something. This is, this is not going to be a very complex statement. Matter of fact, it's simple, but I think it's profound. God's work in your life can only occur as God works in your life. Let me just say that again. God's work in your life can only occur as God works in your life. God's blessings flow from where? Honestly, Does God's blessings flow from your efforts, or do they flow from His grace? Do they flow from His love or your deservingness? Does the blessings of God originate from the sacrifices you make from God, or instead do they originate from the one sacrifice He made from you? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. You see, It's all about his work and not yours. Well, some of you are thinking as you sit there. Okay, Zach, that sounds great. So what am I supposed to be doing? Well, you're supposed to be doing what Jacob's doing. Absolutely nothing. Understand, spiritual transformation how you become like Christ, how you grow, how you develop, these things reside not in what you do. They reside in a relationship that you have, your growth, and therefore God's blessings are yielded not through your works, not by you earning them, but instead are yielded by Jesus. And John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is crystal clear. What your role as his disciple is to be. He said, quote, "...abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit." And here's the kicker. Jesus says, "...for without me..." You can do nothing. See, the point of this dream and the reality for you as a disciple is that you need to let God work and your focus should instead be abiding in Jesus. Your focus, your passion, your energies should not be on trying to manifest God's work through your life, but instead resting in a relationship with Jesus that will yield Those things that you desire. It's a relationship. Well, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he had at his head. He set it as a pillar, poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. The name of the city had been loved previously. So Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I can come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. What a moron. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, this reaction is utterly moronic. Like, the phrase itself, Jacob made a vow. You know, that, that statement reveals the fact that he's completely missed the point of the dream. Not about your vows, but about his work, right? You see, in response to everything that God has just revealed to him, Jacob replies in the most audacious of ways. Let me kind of paraphrase what he's literally doing. He's like, God, wow, what a dream, man. That's pretty cool. As a matter of fact, you made some really good promises. I kind of liked them like, man, you rolled out a whole list of things you're going to do. Here's the deal. Here's the kicker, God. If you actually do those things, I'm going to sweeten the pot for you. If you do these things for me, then you know what? I'm going to let you be my God. As a matter of fact, I might even let you. I know you're the God of Abraham and Isaac, but you know, I'll let you be the God of Jacob too. And, And the truth, God, is if you really, really do all this, you know, I'll sweeten the deal You bless me, like you say, I'll give you back a tenth. This is what he's doing. Like, not only does Jacob's immediate compulsion to make a vow to God reveal the fact that he possesses a complete misunderstanding of what grace and therefore the dream was all about, but Jacob's promise to then give a tenth back to God, understand what that is, literally, it's a bribe. It's a bribe meant on incentivizing God's continued favor. Understand, Jacob's vow here, it's completely self-serving. Yes, he's making a promise that will obligate himself to a future action. But the vow itself is predicated on what? On God acting first. Look back at the text. We were told, Jacob made a vow saying, and just look at the next two words, if God if you do this, I'll do that. Jacob's compulsion is to make a vow to God in order to prompt God's continued favor, his blessing, and his protection. And not only is that silly and reveals a misunderstanding of what grace really is, but the truth is it's insulting. Jacob here is treating God as if God is a shrewd merchant, as opposed to a loving father as if his relationship with the Lord was transactional, as opposed to doting. Because God's grace, friend, is based upon a covenant He's made with you and not one you make with Him. Making such a vow in an attempt to receive His continued favor, His continued blessing, it discounts. This is why it's dangerous. It discounts the reality that Jesus and his work on the cross is sufficient. You're questioning that. Now, before we hammer Jacob too much, let's be real for a minute. And that's the fact that, that we often, especially in times of crisis, approach God just about the, the, the most identical way. Like, Let me give you a formula that will kind of indicate when you're making the same mistake as Jacob. Anytime you pray something that fits this, this formula, God, if you do blank, I'll do blank. Have you ever prayed such a thing? Oh, not you guys. I know that. But those other churches, you know, that pray such prayers. Let me give you a few examples of how this actually manifests. Let's say That you've been in a dynamic, you lost your job, you had a nest egg, but that nest egg, that savings, you pull up the account, it's depleted, man. Like you're in crisis mode. Like I got maybe like another month, I really need to land a job. And so now you're desperate. And it's in those moments what happens, man, you'll hit your knees. And you start praying something like this God, if you give me a job, I promise, man. I'll start tithing to the church. I mean, I'll start giving money to charity. Or or what if a child or a spouse is sick and, and there's nothing you can do? You're powerless. Man, that's desperation, right? I mean, you'll hit your knees in such a situation and you'll be like, God, if you just, if you'll heal, if you'll heal my child, if you'll just touch my spouse, if you'll just heal them, if you'll just do this for me, God, you know what? How about this? I'll never, ever miss another Sunday. Like even, even, and I know this will be big of me, even when the Broncos play that stupid game in London, I won't miss church. I'm glad I go to a church with a Saturday service so I don't have to, but you get it, God. Uh, how about this? How about you're in a dynamic, right? where there's a guy or a girl that you're just totally crushing on. I mean, you're in love, madly. There's just one problem. That person has no idea you exist. I mean, you're convinced. This person is going to be my spouse. They just don't know it yet. And despite everything you try to do to get their attention, Nothing's working. I mean, you're desperate. So man, you hit your knees. And you start praying something like, God, if you'll just just open her eyes at how awesome I am. If you'll just open her eyes, how, how good looking. Or how good my personality is. If you'll cause them to fall in love with me, then you know what, God, this is what I'll do. I mean it. I'll give my life to following you. I'll be like a pastor or something, or a missionary. If you do this, I'll do that. We pray that, don't we? We do that, don't we? And what makes that so tragic is that you know what you're actually saying to God? You're saying that you don't believe He really cares for you. You're saying that you don't believe that His love is really unconditional. What you're saying is that grace is instead a manipulation technique that God employs to get things from you. You see, in such prayers, you're implying that God took away your job because you weren't tithing. Or that He allowed your loved one to get sick because you hadn't been making church a priority. Or that the reason that girl hasn't paid attention to you really boils down to the fact that you haven't been serious about your relationship with him. Let me give you a little freebie. It's not your relationship with Jesus that's why that girl hasn't paid attention to you. It's your face. We just need to be real for a minute. Don't blame other things. Go look in the mirror. It's you not her. You see, such an approach, it's not just insulting to God, but it reveals something. And this is what it reveals. It's what it revealed in Jacob, and it's what it reveals in us, that we don't actually understand what His grace is all about. Please note, God is absolutely crazy about you. And he knows everything there is to know about you. That's the truth. God absolutely loves you. He's smitten. Do you believe that? You see, here's the thing you don't have to bargain with a man who is giving everything away in his store for free. But how often we do that? The truth is that this revelation, this dream, it's radical. But Jacob, he didn't get it. Instead of allowing God to work as God had promised, Jacob is still determined, leaving this place to be the master of his own destiny from Bethel. He'll make his way to Laban, where his, his life will go from uncertain to totally dysfunctional. Jacob will find himself a schemer in the house of a master schemer. So much so, he ends up marrying two women. If it weren't worse than that, they're sisters, sister wives. If there's any silver lining, at least he only had one mother-in-law. After some 20 years, 20 years in Haran, Jacob finally decides, you know, it's time for me to head home. He goes through this elaborate process of breaking ties with Laban. He's on his way back to the promised land. He's preparing himself because he knows that there is an inevitable reunion with Esau and his future. As a matter of fact, he's already gotten word that Esau is on the way with 400 men. Dun, dun, dun. Well... Chapter 32, verse 22, it's in this moment that Jacob arose that night, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, set them over the brook, sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. I'm just kind of pause there for a minute. What a place for Jacob to be. He's afraid. A reckoning with Esau is about to commence. His past mistakes, his past transgressions, things Jacob has been running from for years are going to catch up with him. They're unavoidable. Jacob left alone. He's coming back alone to face Esau. Additionally, we're told that Jacob finds himself, not on accident, but he finds himself at a place called And the reason that's not an accident is that the word literally means emptying. For 20 years, Jacob has tried to be his own man, has tried to accomplish God's work apart from God's grace. Jacob has schemed, has worked, has connived. He's clawed his way to where he is. He's achieved all that he has. And yet, because he failed... To allow God's work to be God's work, accomplish God's way, and in God's timing, working instead and his own strength to attain a life only God could give him. In the process, what has Jacob done? He's made a total mess of his life. At this juncture, this night, Jacob finds himself at the end of himself. He's running on empty. He's at the end of his rope. The car's on fumes. Jacob is out of schemes, out of ideas. There is nothing more that he can do. And the second half of verse 24, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Imagine this scene. Jacob is on a crash course with his brother Esau. He's alone. It's dark. Jacob is desperate, exhausted. <laughs> He's ready to give up. Went out of nowhere. He hears a sound from the darkness. And what happens? A man attacks him. A wrestling match ensues. It lasts for hours all the way till daybreak. Jacob and this mystery man, all night long, they're going back and forth exchanging blows. It's life or death, man. Now understand, this is not your typical Floyd Mayweather fight where you dance around for 12 rounds trying to not get hit. And for, for that matter, it's not a, a Ronda Rousey, overhyped, 48-second flop. This is a battle royale. Ali Frazier, McGregor going five in the octagon. In order to understand what's happening here and why, you need to first see this man, the aggressor, as not just any man, and Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we're told, In Jacob's strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, capital angel, and prevailed. Jacob wept and sought favor from him. Friend, this man, no, it's capitalized, meaning that the scholars see a divine nature to this man. In Bible terms, we would call this a Christophany. It's the fancy term. A pre-incarnate appearance of none other than the second member of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. A man. The other thing you should keep in mind is this word wrestled. It's the only time we find this word in, in, in Scripture. It literally means dust. The implications here is that what's happening, it's not a dream. This is not a vision, it's not a hallucination, it's not even a spiritual wrestling. What's happening is that there is a physical altercation taking place between Jesus and Jacob. And not only is that gnarly enough, but it's Jesus, not Jacob, that's the initiator of the wrestling match. You see, Jesus, knowing everything going on in Jacob's life, he's the one who steps out of heaven and comes to earth and attacks Jacob. Jesus wrestles with him all night long, hoping that Jacob would give up, call uncle, tap out. On this passage, David Guzik writes, God wanted something from Jacob. God wanted all of his proud self reliance and his fleshly scheming and came to take it by force if necessary. This statement, interesting statement. We're told that Jesus saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, so Jesus touched the socket of Jacob's hip. It's a bizarre statement, but it carries deep meaning. Understand. Jesus wrestled with Jacob all night long, not because he couldn't have licked him right off the bat. Jesus could have walked out of heaven and squished him. He could have drop kicked him across the valley. This is not a match of equals. The battle doesn't go all night because Jacob was formidable. You see, Jesus allowed the struggle to continue the duration with specific intention. You see, the purpose is to get Jacob to a point where he'll finally yield and surrender. Just so happens the old boy's pretty stubborn. It's evident at some point during this wrestling match that Jacob does understand who it actually is he's wrestling with. In verse 30, we read that he observes, I have seen God face to face. At some point this evening, this night, Within the struggle, something changes in Jacob. Jacob goes from wrestling to, at some point, clinging. He goes from fighting off to grabbing hold. Notice when Jesus, about daybreak, he tells Jacob, let me go. What's Jacob's reply? I will not, unless you bless me. Once again, what makes all this the more interesting is that according to Hosea, while Jacob's clinging and Jesus is trying to kick him off, as he's like, let go, and Jacob's crying out, no, I won't unless you bless me. All the while, Jacob is weeping. Tears are flowing. A move in his soul is occurring. This phrase, unless you bless me, Wow. It does reveal quite a bit about now where Jacob is. He's worked for years so hard to see the promises of God manifest in his life, and yet he now understands something important. (laughs) Apart from God's blessing, he's nothing. He says, unless you... Wow. Unless you... He came to the point of realizing unless Jesus, he's nothing. So verse 27, Jesus said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. As Jacob is clinging onto Jesus, think of the powerful implications of this question. Jesus says, What is your name? Now, why would Jesus ask him his name? Is Jesus wanting to make sure he didn't get the wrong guy? You know? You are Jacob, right? We're on the same page? No, no, no. You see, what I think is interesting is that this is not the first time Jacob has been asked that question. You see, 20 years earlier, his father Isaac, who's blind, asked him, What is your name? And what did Jacob say? He lied. And he said his name was Esau. You see, in a sense, by asking him this question, Jesus is reminding Jacob of something profound. You know why your life is a mess? You know why this is all a disaster? What's your name? Oh, yeah, Jacob. That's why. It's you. It's not your parents. It's not Esau. It's not Laban. It's not me. It's not my fault. It's you. Jesus is trying to get him to admit something out loud, to admit who he was. He was Jacob. Literally, he was a heel catcher. That was his identity. It was his nature. He was a schemer. And in this moment, Jesus is trying to get him to concede that he's his biggest problem. My problem Why this is a mess is that I'm Jacob. It's who I am. It's my flesh. I imagine it's in that moment. Jacob lets go. He gets up. The light bulb goes off. The point's been made. The lesson understood. Jacob has come to terms with who he is. He's now acknowledged, yeah, I'm inadequate. He comes to a place of emptiness. Now he finds himself at a point of brokenness. And it's there that what does Jesus then say? what does he do? He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. In ancient cultures, names were significant. Not only did they speak of a person's nature, their identity, but the act of naming signified authority, dominion over the person. This is why God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Additionally, it it explains why God gave Sarah the name Isaac, and then most notably Mary the name Jesus. And yet what's interesting, God changed Abram to Abraham. God gave to term in Isaac's name. But Jacob is the name that was given not by God, but instead by Isaac and Rebekah. And that name, what did it signify? it signified literally the activities of his flesh. They named him Esau. Why? He was hairy. He came out hairy, a furball. Esau means hairy. Seemed to fit. Jacob comes out grabbing hold of his brother's heel. So they're like, oh, what do we name him? Heel catcher. That's what Jacob means. It was at the activities of his flesh. Jacob really was a heel catcher. That said, now that Jacob has come to this point of realizing that he was powerless in his flesh, now that he's come to the point of understanding the power of God's grace, what does God do? He says, Jacob, you will no longer be known by. I am going to rename you. Your name will be Israel. In the Hebrew, this word, it's a compound of two different words. Sarah, which means to rule and El meaning God. The word Israel literally means God rules. He goes from being a heel catcher to one ruled by God. This man will no longer be governed by his flesh, Jacob, but he'll be governed by God for he's Israel. And accepting God's grace, what has happened in his life, Jacob has been given a new identity. So Jacob prayed, He asked, verse 29, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And then on your own, you can continue reading the story. But let me sum up all of this with just kind of one statement. I would hope we're all on the same page, but most of us probably aren't this might seem a little radical, and I don't mean to ruffle feathers, but here it goes. God is not Oprah. I know, shocker. Tell me about it. Nor is he Dr. Phil. And what I mean by that is that God is not interested in making you a better you. Instead, God's sole desire is to make you into something brand new. The goal of Christianity isn't the renovation of self, but a complete regeneration. The purpose isn't life improvements via behavioral modifications. The purpose of Christianity is new life via an internal transformation brought forth through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. It says the apostle Paul so gloriously wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. He says therefore if anyone is in Christ he's a new creation. All things have passed away, all things have become new. See the story of Jacob wrestling with Jesus in the context of him failing to understand grace, which leads him on this 20-year journey towards emptiness and brokenness. Is that the story of Jacob illustrates the mechanism for how that transformation actually takes place. Consider, how did Jacob ultimately become the man that God had called him to be? Was it through his efforts? Striving, scheming, planning, working, ingenuity, his flesh, the natural man? Jacob? No, not at all. Jacob was the man that God wanted him to be the very moment he reached the end of himself, was willing to admit who he was, insufficient, stopped wrestling with and grabbed hold of Jesus, surrendered his flesh to the influence of divine grace, and allowed God to transform him by giving him a new identity. I am no longer Jacob. I am Israel. For so many years, Jacob tried so very hard and failed so triumphantly, in the process When in one moment, he became what he was working so hard to be when God made him. Christian, I know that you honestly, sincerely want to be the person God has called you to be. You you want to be the wife God has called you to be, or the husband, or the father, or the mother, or the co-worker, or the boss, the neighbor the friend. You want to be the person that God has called you to be. And yet, please understand the key to accomplishing that. Isn't you working harder? The story of Jacob teaches us that the key is to instead stop wrestling with Jesus and surrender to the power of his grace, demonstrated in the fact that he died on the cross for you. In a sense, what I'm saying is stop trying to become the person only God can make you. Consider this. Consider all of the things that Jesus has already accomplished in your life apart from your involvement, okay? You were an enemy of God, but He made you a child of the Most High. You sowed seeds of wickedness in the world, but he made you an heir of all of the promises of heaven. You were ripped off, now you're eternally blessed. You were once held captive to a sinful world, but now you're a citizen of heaven. You were once lost, but you're found. Blind, but now you see. You were lame, but you run. Broken, but made whole. You were a blasphemer, but today you're a proclaimer. A rebel, but you're a friend. Fallen, but it was Jesus who made you righteous before God. And here's the point. How did any of that stuff happen? You or Him? Did you work hard to earn these things? Did you scheme to procure them, wrestle to attain them? Shoot, do you even deserve them? No. Instead, you became and were given all of those things the moment you came to the end of yourself was empty and broken and stopped wrestling with Jesus and accepted this glorious truth that His grace is more than all you need. Friend, if that work of God alone, if His work If he was able to begin it, don't you think he's more than able to complete it? He doesn't need your help. As a matter of fact, it's better if you don't. Get out of his way. Stop wrestling and let Jesus transform you. Hang out with him. Let him teach you. Let him make you. Let him show you how to walk, how to enjoy the identity you've been given. Unless Jesus blesses you, you're in grave trouble. Unless, grace, you'd remain as you are. As we close, don't forget why Jesus came and wrestled with Jacob. It's not because he was angry or judgmental. Jesus came and wrestled. He initiated. Why? because he had seen Jacob's life. He's like, enough's enough. I love you enough that I'm going to come and I'm going to wrestle all night long, if that's what it takes. You see, Jesus had tried to reveal the power of his grace to Jacob through that dream, but Jacob missed it. So what did God do? He allowed him. Go for it. You want to try to live this life apart from me? 20 years. And then he made a mess of things and he came to this point, and he's broken and he's empty and Jesus shows up and he's like, are you ready? Are you done? What Jesus say to Paul? It's hard to kick against the goats. To resist what you know is true. I can imagine that there are more than a few of you, Christian or non-Christian alike, that are presently wrestling with Jesus. Right where you're seated. You want God's blessings, but you want them on your terms. You want God to work, but only in a way that you determine. You want to remain in control. Well, just like Jacob. Will you admit that you've made a mess of things? How you doing at it? Spiritually speaking, you've taken control. How's that working? A lot of failure. A lot of condemnation, a lot of falling flat on your face. You've rejected Jesus, you're living your life the way that you want to. How's that working out, honestly? You see, there's a wrestling going on in your soul right now because you know that the life that Jesus is offering is far superior to the one you're creating. Will you surrender to that? Please surrender. It's why when we sing songs, we raise our hands. I surrender. I can't do it. And that's okay, because he can, and he's able, and he's sufficient. So will you quit wrestling with Jesus and instead grab hold? Will you surrender to the radical nature of his grace, that it's his grace that transforms the individual by making you into something you're not? something brand new. As the worship team comes up to close us in one song, whether you're sitting here or you're listening on the radio, a friend of mine, his name's Ryan, known Ryan for years. I was his youth pastor before now I'm his pastor. Ryan resisted, struggled. Oh boy, he wrestled for years. Ryan graduated high school, went into the military, saw things that no young man should see, came back different, broken, empty. He was in church listening to this story, and God changed his life. About a month ago, I baptized Ryan. Big old dude, got a beard about four times the size of mine, slick back hair, tatted up, not the kind of guy you want to bump into in a back alley. But as we're there and I'm about to baptize him, I give him an opportunity to share something. Ryan, you got anything you want to say? He looks out to his family and his friends, tears pouring down his face, and this is what he said. He said, stop fighting. Stop wrestling. Just surrender, man. And that's my exhortation. Wherever you are, whether you're listening in your car or you're seated right in front of me, stop wrestling. God has great things planned if you'll let him. And so, Father, Lord, we just let that settle into our hearts. May your work be accomplished in this place. May you take this example of Jacob. Allow that to settle. We're nothing apart from your son, Jesus, and the work of him making us into something new. Lord, we love you, in Jesus' name. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.